Pastor John here. I want to thank you for joining us today. We're going to answer the question, what do a poor widow in a beautiful temple have to teach us about living the Christian life? Our passage today is Luke 21 verses 1 through 24. Our sermon is called The Pride and the Pauper. I'll be back at the end of the sermon to tell you a little bit more about Warrington Bible Fellowship. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 21. We're going to be in verses 1 through 24. And while you're finding that, I've got to tell you, I, I opened up a, a, uh, a car dealership in 1993. Uh, we were down here in the corner where Wawa is. Uh, and, you know, it was a small dealership. The automaker didn't have very high hopes for us. Well, we don't have a lot of penetration in that area. We'll give you some inventory. If you sell that, we'll give you some more. Um, just before we opened the dealership, the owner committed himself to the Lord. And so we dedicated the company to the Lord tithe the whole thing uh, and so and what happened was again the windows of heaven opened up we, we were successful beyond our wildest dreams we were doing seven eight nine ten times as many as a manufacturer uh, thought we would do they're sending people down to see what's going on we're telling them well it's because the lord owns the company they're going okay that's good we're going to go back to detroit you keep doing what you're doing Okay. So in the second year, they had a new program for customer satisfaction, brand new program, national program. And uh, they came to us and said, well, you should try and, and qualify for this. It's probably going to take a couple years. And we, we began working really hard on it. In three months, we qualified for the program. We found out we were the third dealership in the nation to qualify for the program. And we had really high grades. And because of that, uh, I got to go to Detroit and receive this really cool award. And it's a plaque that had our name on it. Now, we had a hallway in the dealership that we called the, the Hall of Fame because we had all of, you know, salesperson of the month and so on and so forth, stuff from the city. And I, I must have spent a week hanging that plaque in exactly the right place in the Hall of Fame. And I'd look at it and I'd walk from one way and look from the other. And go, no, 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 we need to move it three inches this way. No, we need to move it up. We need to move it down. And I, I just wanted to make sure that everybody that walked down that hallway saw the award. I was proud of it. I was really proud of it. What are you proud of? What do you want everybody to see? What do you hold on to so dearly that it helps define you? That was the position I was in. I thought I was this car dealer guy. I found out differently. We need to ask ourselves these questions. You know, last week we talked about who has authority in your life today? Who do you, who do you assign authority to? Who do you allow to dictate how you are going to respond to the people around you? That, that person, those people kind of become our gods. And, and, and we get to make that choice. We get to choose who has authority in our lives. Ultimately, what we're going to find out, if we don't already know it, is that Christ has the only authority that we need to recognize. He has all of the authority. Him and his word. So today, as Jesus begins to, to take his final few steps before the cross in, in Jerusalem... We're going to see two lessons. We're going to see one lesson in humility and another lesson in pride and where we can go with our pride. So our sermon today is the pride and the pauper. And our lesson in humility is going to come from a poor widow in verses 1 through 4. 
And then our lesson in pride is going to come from a prophecy. And this is going to be a prophecy about a doomed temple in verses 5 through 24. So our context is that Jesus has revealed that he's the Messiah. He's giving everybody all of those signals. He's a Messiah. He's a son of God. Now, he's done this kind of obliquely, but you don't have to read too far in between the lines to hear what he's saying. My father's house, son of David, Lord, that sort of thing. So, and all that came on the heels of a warning that we've got to be careful who we trust and not to trust arrogant and prideful people like the scribes. So the scribes are the celebrity of their day. And we have celebrities today that we need to be careful of. The people are clamoring after Christ. They're following him. There's a lot of excitement about him. Uh, and the leaders, the leaders want to kill him. Now, it's Holy Week. This is the final week before the cross. Every day, there's something vitally important in our understanding of who we are and how we relate to Christ that is going on. So Jesus is teaching in the temple in our passages today. Uh, He's not inside the temple. He's on the temple mount. Now, there was a large area called the court of the Gentiles, and just inside that is the court of the women. Just inside that is the court of the men. The treasury is out near the court of the women. There are porticos all around the temple mount, porches with the columns and everything. And rabbis would walk along those porticos and teach. That's, that's what Jesus is doing. The people that believe in him are following him around. He had a sizable crowd that was following him around. And he recently taught about who to trust and who to follow, warning not to put trust in, in those scribes and people like the scribes. So that's the context of what's happening. And then we see this lesson on the poor widow. She's the pauper in our title. And, and we see in, in the first four verses two types of giving. The first type of giving we see is the giving of the rich. Verse 1, Jesus looked up and saw the rich. Now notice, we, we've heard about the rich before, haven't we? That it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. We, we saw that teaching. So we, we know that Jesus is not condemning having money. He's condemning making money your God making it the focus of your life. So Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box. Now, if you don't know about the temple, you don't know exactly what's going on here, but I, I told you near the court of the women was the treasury. Outside of the treasury were 13 horn-shaped vessels. They were made out of metal. And that's where, that's where the donations would go. Now, they didn't have any paper money back then. Everything was coins. And so the way to make your offering was to drop a coin into one of those 13 vessels. Now, the rich people would make a show of this. They would throw their coin at the edge of the vessel, and the vessel would ring. And if they wanted to really make a show, they would go to each of the 13 and throw coins in them. And people would look and go, oh, look at that. Look at how much they're giving. So they're giving, and and here's the first lesson in giving that we see in these four verses, the giving of these rich people, and this is what Jesus is pointing out. Again, he's not condemning being rich, he's condemning being prideful about being rich. He's condemning about making your, your riches the focus about you, and that's what those people were doing. They were making their giving more about them than about the God who gave them those blessings. So the first type of giving we see here is self-focused and prideful. And then we see 
another type of giving in the giving of this widow. Verse 2, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Now, what this is, other passages call these mites. What they are, they're very small coins. They're one 128th of a denarius. It literally works out to be about 6.25 cents. So we've got the rich people ringing these bells and the woman putting in six cents. And in verse 3, Jesus said to his disciples, and we know he's talking to the disciples. He has been since verse 45 of chapter 20. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow's put in more than all of them. And you can see the disciples go, what are you talking about? That's six cents. What possible help in, in running the temple and advancing the kingdom of God can six cents be? She didn't even ring the bell. Jesus gives them a startling answer. Really? Verse 4. For they all contributed out of their abundance. The, the rich people contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she has to live on. Now, how did he know that? Well, he's the son of God. He knows what's in the hearts of men. He knows more about this widow than the disciples can see. But he's told them that she's put more than the other because she's given everything. And we find out that it's not how big her donation it is. It is how big her heart for God is. That's what God counts. Well, the rich folks gave out of what they had left over. The woman gave everything she had. Now, we need to think about this for a second. She put on a dazzling display of her spiritual condition, of where she was with God. She trusted God completely for her fate. I mean, this woman, she just gave away all of her money. She doesn't know where the next meal's going to come from. She showed her commitment to her faith, her commitment to her Father in heaven. She didn't know where her next meal would come from, but she did know where all of her blessings came from. Wow. So, and this comes immediately after Jesus tells his followers not to trust all those people that look so good and sound so good. Not to trust all those prideful, arrogant, self-centered people. Right here, he tells them you should be trusting the humble people. If you're looking for examples of how to walk out in your faith, follow these people who are so invested in God that they trust him with everything that they have. And that's the first lesson we see in today's passage. Jesus says, follow those people who trust their Father in heaven with everything they have. And then we get into this prophecy about the doomed temple. This is the pride portion of our title, starting in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offering. Now, what we're talking about here is the second temple. Solomon built his temple uh, you know, the Chaldeans came in and destroyed everything, carried everybody away. Uh, the Persians rise up. King Cyrus sends Nehemiah and Ezra back to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple. Uh, and that temple was rebuilt, but it was small. You can read about that in the Old Testament. People looked at it and they kind of regretted that it was so much smaller than Solomon's temple. Well, Herod comes in in the first century B.C., and in 19 BC starts rebuilding it. And he makes something really incredibly fabulous. And it, the, it, it started in, in 14 BC and Josephus 
gives us a description of the temple. It's made out of white marble slabs. They're 70 feet by 12 feet by 12 feet. They're still trying to figure out how they moved all these things around. They were polished. The, the walls and the doors were adorned with silver and gold. And there were Babylonian tapestries hanging at the gates with blue and red and purple. It was incredibly rich. The Roman historian Taciturn says it. He called the temple immensely opulent. It was an incredible place. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it was the very epicenter of the Jewish faith. Everything they did centered on the temple. The genealogies were there. The Holy of Holies were there. This is where, every, it's where the, the, the sacrifices took place. And the temple was the representation of God among his people. It had been since the tabernacle. It was a sign that God was with his people. His chosen people. It looked formidable. It looked eternal. It looked like it would just last forever. And it was a focus of their heritage. And by the first century, it was the focus of their pride. They were proud of the temple. Focus of their faith, the focus of their pride. And had become the temple and the priests had become the epicenter of what they did. Instead of God, instead of the, what it was designed to do was represent God, it became to represent the Jews and their status amongst other people. Jesus has some surprising news about this temple. Verse 6, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left one stone upon another and that will not be thrown down. Now, this is, this is startling. It's surprising. The temple is temporary, he's saying. It's not permanent. It, it's not going to be here forever. And even more concerning, uh, God's blessing on this place, God's blessing on this house is going to be removed. His protection is going to be gone. They were counting on that. And not just on the temple, but Jesus says specifically, these things that you see. They're standing on the Mount of Olives. They're looking over the temple mount, but they can see the entire city. He said, all these things that you're looking at, the entire place is doomed. And now, now we have a full understanding as to why Jesus stopped halfway down the Mount of Olives on his way to the city and wept. They missed the time of their visitation and doom was going to come down upon them. People are going to reject them. Meanwhile, they're celebrating God's presence among them. And they don't even recognize God when he shows up. It's an incredible moment. Not only that, but in a few short days, they're going to try and kill him. So th this kind of animates the disciples. They're not quite sure what to make out of this. Verse 7, and they ask him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? They, they, they want to know, when is this going to happen? And how are we going to know that it's coming? We need to prepare for this. And he said, see that you're not led astray. Now, he said, don't be fooled by what's going on around you. Don't try to interpret the events around you to mean something that they don't. There are some things that you need to look for to know when this is coming. He's not going to leave them hanging. And, and, and we need to understand that this portion of the prophecy right here 
is, is, has to do with the time immediately after the resurrection and the ascension. And I'll show you why in a moment. But the, the disciples are going to experience the things we see in this part of the prophecy. Now, we would do well to pay close attention to this because the principles on how God interacts with his people, how he interacts with the world, are going to be put on display. So there's a lot that we could learn here. But we need to be very careful not to try and interpret the things we're about to hear into today's events because that, the, the, the preciseness of it is just not going to be there. So he says, see that you're not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Don't go after them. Others are going to come saying, this is the end. And Josephus tells us, you know, Josephus was a noted Jewish historian, not a Christian historian. He tells us that there were several people in the region that rose up after the ascension saying that they were Moses or they were Elijah or they were the Messiah. Jesus says, don't listen to him. And all that happened right there by the end of the first century. And in verse 9, Jesus says, and when you hear of wars and tumults, Wars and rumors of wars. I mean, we hear that all the time, don't we? Oh, wars and rumors of war. These are the last days. They are. They've been the last days since 1 AD. There are wars and tumults. There are wars and rumors of war everywhere. The only difference between now and any other time in history is we have this instant news for us. You know, before it was, oh, there was a war in China four years ago. I wonder what happened. Now it's like breaking news, breaking news. Somebody spit on somebody in China. <laughs> We've got this information overload, and it comes instantaneously. And so we try to interpret current events around us as the end times. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. But we've got to be careful because not much has changed since Jesus said these words. Do you hear of wars and tumults? Do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So even though you see all this trouble, that's not the end. He tells them, keep your eyes on the lookout. Watch out for verse 10. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And every time a comet comes by, we hear this is the end been going on and on and on. Jesus says, watch out for these things. It's going to be lots of fighting, lots of tension, natural disasters. And then, then he gets specific about what is about to happen. Verse 12. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Now that sounds like a whole bunch of grief and pain, doesn't it? This is the price. This is the price of being a follower of Christ. This is kind of hard for us to process because we've been comfortable for so long, isn't it? But Jesus says, they're going to lay hands on you. And, and yes, he's talking to the disciples. But it's a principle that we need to understand that the world will hate us because of Christ. How are believers going to respond to this? Well, you know, some, all these things happened to Peter, Paul, John, James. All the apostles, they were martyred terribly, horrifically. And Jesus tells us 
how to navigate those moments. He tells us what to do in that hour in which we suffer persecution. What does a believer do when the world is falling apart all around him and seems to be turning against him? And and brothers and sisters, we're at that hour. The world is turning against us. What do we do? Look at verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. I've been telling you since the restrictions hit, this is the greatest gospel opportunity the world has ever seen. We've never had a moment like this. We've never had a moment where you could sit in your living room and talk to somebody all the way across the world. We've never had a moment where we can send some funds to a guy in Romania who will get them the next day and be able to feed children that have no food, and we would hear about it that afternoon. God has given us this technology and this time for the sake of the gospel. And that's what Jesus is saying here. This is going to be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. You ever do that? You ever think, oh, I got a rough meeting I'm going to go to. I'm going to say this and I'm going to say that. And, 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 and I'm, I'm, I've got all these things I'm going to say. And then after the meeting, we walk out and we go, I should have said this and I should have said that. Jesus says, don't do that. He just talked about this widow who trusts God with everything. He says, trust God with that moment. You're worried about how to do the gospel. You're trying to memorize all these steps and all of these these patterns of questions and getting people to say, yes, stop doing that. And when you have the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody, just open your mouth and the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. Now, that sounds a little mystical to me, doesn't it? Oh, no, 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 I got a plan. If, if I ask these ten questions and get yes to nine of them, I am surely going to get a yes to the ten. We've got a method for this. Jesus' method is trust in me. Trust in the Holy Spirit. In that dark moment that you have, and you don't know how to respond to the people around you, say a little prayer. Father, help me. And let him do the heavy hitting. It says here, verse 15, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. And all Jesus is really saying is if you're going to follow me, you're going to experience the same type of betrayal and pain that I'm about to experience. Take up your cross and follow me. It's going to be a rough walk. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be some pain involved, but there's glory on the other end. We're headed to glory. We're not headed to eternal pain and conflict. We're headed to eternal peace and joy. Follow me. Take up your cross. Then he reemphasizes verse 17. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. It's okay. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, Jesus is not talking about temporal life here. 
He's not saying none of you are going to die. He's not saying none of you are going to get hurt. He's already said there's going to be pain and some are going to die. He's talking about eternal life here. Our mortal lives can end, but our eternal lives will continue. It's not the first time he's told us about this. We saw it in Luke chapter 12. So, starting in verse 4 of 12, he said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. Sometimes the body is killed. And after that, have nothing more than they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who has, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you to fear him. I'm not talking about a trembling uh, uh, terror of God. He's talking about a trembling, awestruck reverence for God. Fear God and you'll be okay. Now, all this stuff that Jesus is talking about happens for the disciples before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. This is what's in store for the people that have gathered around him. So, so far, Jesus has been talking about the immediate future, the immediate future after, uh, right after he's resurrected, before the end of the first century. And we know this is true because of what he says next in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Now, that happens in A.D. 70. Somewhere around A.D. 66 or 67, the Jews rise up against the Romans and rebel. In A.D. 70, the Roman emperor sends the troops in and they level the city. They level the temple. Now, all that, Jesus is saying all this is going to happen as they're looking at the temple. And you know, some of them are sitting there going, well, I don't understand how it can happen. Look how beautiful the temple is. Look how big it is. Look how magnificent it is. It's God's representation among us. Why would he allow it to be destroyed? Jesus doesn't stop. Verse 21. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it. This is counterintuitive when you live near, uh, close to a walled city and the army showed up you went inside the city that's where the protection was saying don't do that run out to get out of the city run away from the city don't come from the countryside into the city verse 22 for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against its people wrath against this people wrath against these people that you see down there in that city woe to those who are pregnant because they can't move very fast They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. How long is that going to be? Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So what Jesus is saying, there's going to be an age of dominance by the Gentiles. But that time, that time is limited. And it will come to an end. Paul refers to a time near the end when Jews and Gentiles will be united in Christ. We see that in Romans. Romans 11, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight. 
I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The Jews are going to be grafted back in. Jesus is describing this incredible desolation. He says, that's not the end. God is going to level upon these people the consequences for what they've done. You're looking at the pride of their faith. And I'm telling you, that's not where it is. But that's okay, because God is going to redeem them. There's the promise of redemption here. You see, this is a time of incredible suffering, followed by a time of incredible peace, a time that never ends for all those who take up their cross and follow Jesus. Not all the disciples, this would become tragically real in a very short period of time. For those who put their faith and their pride in the temple, for those who observe the trappings of their faith, but not the object of it. They've got a framework for their religion, but they've ignored the foundation of everything that they believe. They're going to perish. So, so we see these two lessons. We see this poor widow, this lesson of humility. One that comes from this simple woman who really is of no account. People would not have even noticed her walking into the temple grounds. But she trusts God completely, so much so that she trusts him for her next meal. She doesn't have anything to buy food with. She's given everything. She honors God with the very last of her possessions. And, and Jesus contrasts it with these rich folks who gave what's left over. They gave God their second best, just kind of made a nod towards them and said, yeah, okay, we got this, we give some of it back. Widow gave everything. Jesus tells the disciples, it's not about how much you give. It's about how much you trust. So there's a lesson of the widow. We have this lesson of pride. Uh, the temple was beautiful, incredibly stunning. It was meant to represent God. It was not meant to be God. It was not meant to be the foundation of their faith. Jews had gotten so caught up in the trappings of their faith that they forgot who God was, and then missed him when he showed up. Jesus has done these incredible things. He's healed people. He's raised the dead. He's taught with incredible authority. He's, he's used scriptures to try and teach them. He's called them to repent at every turn. And they still turn around and go, no, 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 that can't be God because we understand God better than he does. Well, God was about to remove all the trappings. He's not going to abandon his people, but there are going to be consequences for what they've done. Things are going to be rough, and they're going to be rough for a long time. And, and here's what's happening. The, the, the destruction of the temple marks the onset of a new age. Some people call it the church age. But God's going to take away the temple. He's going to knock it down as a brick and mortar uh, uh, edifice. And, and he's transforming the new temple into the body of Christ. The, the brick and mortar that show the world that God was among them would become flesh and blood. 
just like the word became flesh and blood. And that flesh and blood that is the new temple, brothers and sisters, is you and me. He took away that beautiful temple 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem and replaced it with us. We are now the representation of God among his people. We are now the presence of God in the world. And we exist in the time of the Gentiles. All the principles that we saw here apply to you and me. Things will get rough. But those who keep their eyes on Jesus, those who remember the foundation of their faith, those who remember what they're called to do, those who set aside pride and arrogance, even if it's pride in your faith, those are the ones that will endure. We place our pride and our faith in the trappings of religion, like we've seen these folks do, without being faithful first to Christ, without looking to God and the word as our foundation, without being willing to give him our everything, without trusting him completely, then it's going to be an even rougher ride. Notice God doesn't forsake his people. But they have a really hard way to go because they haven't done what they're supposed to do. Brothers and sisters, those things that we're proud of will be taken from us. They'll be removed. And we will have to wait to be grateful while we watch the humble widows of our time enjoy the peace and the joy and the blessings of a close relationship with our Father in heaven. A couple months ago, Kelly was cleaning out our spare bedroom. She pulled out from underneath the bed this box of awards. Spider webs, dust. And the first award she pulled out was that award that we got for being excellent. When I left the dealership, the owner gave it to me and said, you earned this. Yes, I And she said, what do you want to do with this? And I said, you know what? It doesn't mean anything anymore. I was proud of it. And I realized that it wasn't me that did any of that. It was God in me and through me. It's a humbling moment, not a prideful moment. It's a moment where you reflect on things and go, where did I get it so wrong? I pray that God gives us all the wisdom and the discernment to get these things right there's rough days coming. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the warning. We give you thanks for the lay of the land. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to keep our focus on those things that are the main things, those things that are the plain things, and not overcomplicate this, Father. We know it's about the gospel. We know that everything we have and everything you've given us and is all intended to be here for the sake of the gospel as a demonstration of you among us. We pray that we would make that our highest priority, Father, our heart's fondest desire. Lord, that we would be your representatives to a world that is being shaken. Maybe we're near the end times, Father. 
we leave that to your hands. We pray that you help us to be faithful in this time that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back again next week. Pastor John here again. I want to thank you for spending some time with us. If you're interested in supporting our ministry financially, you can give online at wbfva.org, clicking on the giving section, or you can send us a check to Warrington Bible Fellowship, 46 Winchester Street, Warrington, Virginia, 20186. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your prayer requests. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back again next week.